Chapter Eleven of Fidelity by Susan Glaspell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. He went away from there that night, not knowing more than that. It was merely that she let him see. He knew now that there was some big thing in her life he had known nothing about, that he had not understood Ruth, though he had known her through all the years and had thought he knew her so well. He was bewildered. His pain was blunted in that bewilderment. There was a sick sense of life as all different, but he was too dazed then for the pain that came later with definite knowing. He went home that night, and because he could not sleep tried to read a medical book. Usually that took all his mind. For the time other things would not exist for him. But that was not true tonight. That world of facts could not get him. He lived right on in the world of his own feeling. He was not to have Ruth. He did not seem able to get a real sense of that either. There was just a sick feeling about it rather than actual realization, acceptance. And what did it mean? Surely he knew Ruth's life, the people she went with. It was always he when he was at home Ruth went about with. Someone away from home? But she had been very little away from home. Who could it be? He went over and over that. It came to seem unreal, as if there were some misunderstanding, some mistake. And yet that look! His own disappointment was at times caught up into his marvel at her. That moment's revelation of what her caring could be was so wonderful as to bear him out of the fact that it was not for him she cared. That was the way it was all through, his love for her deepening with his marvel at her, the revelation of what she felt for another man claiming more and more of himself for her. It was a thing he would have scoffed at if told of. It was a thing he could not somehow justify even to himself. But it was true that the more he saw of what love meant to Ruth, the more Ruth came to mean to him. In those next few months, the months before he actually knew, there were times when he could almost persuade himself that there was something unreal about it all, torturous wonderings as to who the man could be, trailing off into the possibility of there being no man, because he knew of none. Sometimes he tried to persuade himself that this passionate feeling he had glimpsed in Ruth was a thing apart from any particular man, for who was the man? Sometimes he could, for a moment, let in the hope that since she could care like that she would care for him. Though he more than half knew, he deluded himself in that. There was, now that his eyes were opened, that in Ruth's manner, to indicate something in her life which did not appear on the surface. He saw how nervous she was, how strained at times, how worried and cross, which was not like Ruth at all. There were times when her eyes were imploring, times when they were afraid. Again there were moments of that lovely calm, when feeling deep and beautiful radiated from her, as it had that night they sat on the steps, and, drawn by something in her, he had to tell her that he loved her. She did queer, unreasonable things, would become exasperated at him for apparently nothing at all. Once, when she had told him she was going somewhere with her mother, he later saw her hurrying by alone. Another time she told him she was going to Edith's, and when he called up there, wanting to take them both with him for a long trip he had to make into the country, Edith said Ruth had not been there. Thoughts that he did not like, that he could not believe, came into his mind. He was not only unhappy, but grew more and more worried about Ruth. That went on for several months, and then one day, late that same summer, she came to him with the truth. She came because she had to come. He was a doctor, he was her friend. 
She was in a girl's most desperate plight and she had no one else to turn to. It was in his office that she told him, not looking at him, her face without color and drawn out of shape, her voice quick, sharp, hard, so unlike Ruth's sweet voice that without seeing her he would not have known it. She threw out the bare facts at him as she sat there very straight, hands gripped. He was stupefied at first, but it was fury which then broke through, the fury of knowing it was this, that not only was he not to have Ruth, but that another man had her, the fury that rose out of the driving back of all those loose ends of hope that had eased pain a little. And Ruth, this! He little knew what things he might not have said and done in those first moments of failing her, turning on her because he himself was hurt beyond his power to bear. And then Ruth spoke to him. "'But I thought you believed in love, Dean,' she said quietly. "'Love!' he brutally flung back at her. "'Yes, Dean, love!' she said, and the simplicity, the dignity of her quiet voice commanded him, and he had to turn from himself to her. She was different now. She looked at him steadily, proudly. Out of the humiliation of her situation she raised a proud face for love. Love could bring her disgrace. It could not strip her of her own sense of the dignity of loving. Her power was in that, in that claim for love that pain and humiliation could not beat back. I notice he's not here," he sneered, still too overwhelmed to be won from his own rage to her feeling. I thought it better for me to come, she said simply, and as she said it and he remembered her drawn, wretched face in telling him, he was quieted a little by a sense of what it had cost her to come. Because, she added, you're my friend, you know. He did not say anything, miserably wondering what she now thought of him as her friend. Oh, Dean, she broke out, don't be hard. If you could know what he's suffering. Being a man, being a little older, what's that? If you can understand me, Dean, you've got to understand him, too. He stood there in silence looking at Ruth as, looking away from him now, she brooded over that. In this hour of her own humiliation, her appeal was for the man who had brought it upon her. How you love him, escaped from him in bitterness and yet marvelling. She turned to him then in her swift way, again, as on that night of his first seeing, her face transformed by that flaming claim for love. It was as if life was shining triumphant through the cloud of misery it had brought down around her. He could not rage against that look. He had no scorn for it. It lighted a country between them which words could not have undarkened. They came together there in that common understanding of the power and beauty of love. He was suddenly ashamed, humbled, feeling in her love a quality upon which no shameful circumstance could encroach. And after that she found relief in words, the words she had had to deny herself so long. It was as if she found it wonderfully good to talk, in some little measure linking her love, as love wants to link itself, with the other people of the world, coming within the human unit. Things which circumstances had prisoned in her heart, too intensified by solitude, leaped out like winged things let loose. But in that hour of talking with him, though words served her well, it was that proud flaming claim for love which again and again lighted her face that brought him into understanding, winning him for her against his own love of her. In the year which followed, that last year before circumstances closed in too tight and they went away, it was he who made it possible for Ruth to move a little more freely in the trap in which she found herself. 
He helped her in deceiving her family and friends, aided them in the ugly work of stealing what happiness they could from the society in which they lived. He did not like doing it. Neither did he like attending the agonies of childbirth, or standing impotently at the bed of the dying. It might seem absurd, in trying to explain oneself, to claim for this love the inevitability of the beginning and the end of life, and yet, seeing it as he saw it, he did think of it, not as a thing that should or should not be, but as a thing that was, not as life should or should not be lived, but as life. This much he knew, that whatever they might have been able to do at the first, it had them now. They were in too powerful a current to make a well-considered retreat to shoals of safety. No matter what her mood might have been in the beginning, no matter what she could have done about it then, Ruth was mastered, not master, now. Love had her. He saw that too well to reason with her. What he saw of the way of all other people mattered so much less than the passion which claimed her made him feel, not that Ruth was selfish, but that the passion was mastering. The way she deceived made him feel, not that she was deceitful, but that love like that was as unable to be held back in the thought of wrong to others as in the consideration of safety for oneself. The two were equally inadequate floodgates. Not that those other things did not matter, he knew how they did make her suffer, but that this one thing mattered overwhelmingly more was what he felt in Ruth in those days when she would be thought to be with him and would be with Stuart Williams. For himself that was a year of misery. He saw Ruth in a peculiarly intimate way, taken as he was into the great intimacy of her life. His love for her deepened with his knowing of her, and anxiety about her preyed upon him all the time, passionate resentment that it should have gone like that for her, life claiming her only, as it seemed, to destroy her. He never admitted to himself how much he really came to like Stuart Williams. There seemed something quixotic in that. It did not seem natural he should have any sympathy with this man who not only had Ruth's love, but was endangering her whole life. Yet the truth was that as time went on, he not only came to like him, but to feel a growing concern for him. For the man changed in that last year. It was not only that he looked older, harassed, had grown so much more silent, but Dean as a physician noticed that he was losing weight, and there was a cough that often made him look at him sharply. A number of times Ruth said, I don't think Stuart's well, but she looked so wretched in saying it that he always laughed at her. The Williamses were not patients of his, so he felt that professional hesitance, even though he thought it foolish professionalism, in himself approaching Stuart about his health. Once, when he seemed particularly tired and nervous, Dean did venture to suggest a little layoff from work, a change, but Stuart had answered irritably that he couldn't stop work, and didn't want to go away anyhow. It was almost a year after the day Ruth came to him steeled for telling what had to be told, that the man of whom she that day talked came to tell him what he had been suspecting, that he had tuberculosis, and would have to take that layoff Dean had been hinting at. It seemed it was either go away or die. Probably, he added, with an attempted laugh, it was go away and die, but better go away, he thought, than stay there and give his friends an exhibition in dying. They talked along over the surface of it, as is people's way, Dean speaking mildly of tuberculosis, how prevalent, how easily controlled, how delightful Arizona was, the charms of living out of doors, and all the time each of them knew that the other was not thinking of that at all, but thinking of Ruth. Finally, bracing himself as for a thing that was all he could do, Stuart spoke of her. 
Ruth said she was coming in to see you about something this afternoon. I thought I'd get in first and tell you. I wondered what you'd think, what we'd better do." His voice trailed off miserably. He turned a little away and sat there in utter dejection. And as he looked at him, it came to Dean that love could be the most ruthless, most terrible thing in the world. People talked to him afterwards about this man's selfishness in taking his own pleasure, his own happiness, at the cost of everyone else. He said little, for how could he make real to anyone else his own feeling about what he had seen of the man's suffering, utter misery, as he spoke of the girl to whom he must bring new pain? Someone spoke to him afterwards of this light love, and he laughed in that person's face. He knew that it was love bathed in pain. A new sense of just how hideous the whole thing was made him suddenly demand, "'Can't you do anything about it? Isn't there any way? Any way you can get a divorce?' he bluntly asked. "'Mrs. Williams does not believe in divorce,' was the answer, spoken with more bitterness than Dean had ever heard in any voice before. Dean turned away with a little exclamation of rage, rage that one person should have this clutch on the life of another, of two others and one of them Ruth, sickened with a sense of the waste and the folly of it. For what was she getting out of it, he savagely put to himself. How could one get anything from life simply by holding another from it? Does she know anything about Ruth? he asked, with an abrupt turn to Stuart. She has mentioned her name several times lately and looked at me in doing it. She isn't one to speak directly of things, he added, with a more subtle bitterness than that of a moment before. They sat there for a couple of minutes in silence, a helpless, miserable silence. When, after that, Dean stepped out into the waiting-room, he found Ruth among those there. He only nodded to her and went back and told Stuart that she was there. "'But it's only three, said he helplessly, and she said she was coming at four. "'Well, I suppose she came earlier than she intended,' Dean replied, about as helplessly, and went over and stood looking out the window. After a moment he turned. "'Better get it over with, hadn't you? She's got to be told,' he said, a little less brusquely, as he saw the man wince. "'Better get it over with.' Stuart was silent, head down. After a moment he looked up at Dean. It was a look one would turn quickly away from. Again Dean stood looking from the window. He was considering something, considering a thing that would be very hard to do. After a moment he again abruptly turned around. "'Well, shall I do it?' he asked quietly. The man nodded in a wretched gratefulness that went to Dean's heart. So he called Ruth in from the waiting-room. He always remembered just how Ruth looked that day. She had on a blue suit and a hat with flowers on it that was very becoming to her. She looked very girlish. He had a sudden sense of all the years he had known her. The smile with which she greeted Dean changed when she saw Stuart sitting there. The instant's pleased surprise went to apprehension at sight of his face. "'What's the matter?' she asked sharply. "'Stuart's rather bummed up, Ruth,' said Dean. Swiftly she moved over to the man she loved. "'What is it?' she demanded in quick, frightened voice. "'Oh, just a bad lung,' Dean continued, not looking at them and speaking with that false cheerfulness so hard fought for and of so little worth. "'Don't amount to much. Happens often. But, well, well, you see, he has to go away for a while.' He was bending over his desk, fumbling among some papers. There was no sound in the room, and at last he looked up. 
Stuart was not looking at Ruth, and Ruth was standing there very still. When she spoke her voice was singularly quiet. "'When shall we go?' she asked. End of chapter 11